0: Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Brain, the podcast where we bring the cloud down to earth by talking with some of the top minds in the industry. My Cloudsoft colleague today is Vicky Glynn. She's Head of Strategic Growth.
1: Hi, Alistair.
0: And our guest today is Kylie Fowler from ITAM Intelligence. Uh, we first met Kylie when, when Vicky shared a virtual stage with her at the Digit Cloud First Summit back in June. And we really liked what she had to say about the reality of cloud in complex organizations. So she's a natural guest for us on the podcast today. Hello, Kylie. Why don't Hi. you kick things off by telling us a bit about yourself?
2: Oh. Um- Thank you so much Vicky and Alistair for having me, it's it's great to be here, I'm really chuffed. Uh, Whether I'm one of the greatest brains in the industry is another question entirely, but (laughs) you can all judge for yourselves. So I'm actually an independent IT asset management consultant and what I do really is I help organisations, businesses, um, third sector, public organisations think through how they manage their technology assets.
1: And I think when we, I, I remember when we met, obviously, at the Cloud first summit, it was really interesting that we we didn't kind of talk beforehand, but everyone that was on that panel really almost, that was the prevailing theme was that cloud and technology wasn't just a technology discussion. It was all about the organization and how it fit, you know, how technology fits into the broader organization as well.
2: Yes, and I I think that's a key theme for IT asset managers. In many ways, we sort of almost sit between the operations and the technology layers and the management layers and are translating a lot of the the data and information that comes out of the operational and technology layers into business terms and into business, ideally into business metrics so that, you know, you've got a picture of – you can make financial decisions, you can make – Architectural decisions. You can you can manage a, a load of risk that is emerging up around the way you manage your IT assets. Um, so so in many ways we sort of have a translating role between for, for quite specific areas um, and and very very focused on assets. And of course I think one of the things that we tend to forget is cloud and cloud services are just mm-hmm. another asset. So. And this is one of the key things that I tried to bring out in my talk for Digit was very much that um, we, we want to be cloud first. We're we seeing cloud as something really special, but actually is embedded within the broader organisation. And so we need to be um, managing cloud in the appropriate manner, but within this, the, the context of everything else that's going on within the organisation rather than in its own silo.
0: Yeah, when I think of IT assets, I think of those little asset tags, the little stickers we would put on our monitors on our computers. But of course, in the hybrid and the cloud worlds, these are all virtual assets that still have to be tracked somewhere, right?
2: They do. And, and it's interesting that you say that because, of course, that's the physical manifestation of... Of technology was very much, you know, physical machines sitting in a, sitting in server rooms. But that was that was I hate to tell you it was thirty years ago, and then we and then we sort of started building bigger and bigger servers and started virtualizing services onto those, you know, really big services. And then as an IT asset manager, my the, the emphasis from organisations asked me to change, moving away from managing hardware to managing software and i think again we're now seeing okay so software asset management license management it's still important we still need to manage our licenses but actually there's a new technology on the block a new manifestation of of what of of, of services of a new way of delivering services and that's very much cloud led so we can see that progression of you know what is an it asset it used to be physical then it was software and licensing and and now we're in the cloud, but it's all still assets. It's all still needs to be managed within the broader
1: context of, of the organization and what it's doing. So uh, we've got you on today to talk about some of the broader cultural challenges of cloud and the hybrid reality that many organizations are actually facing. And I, and I think about what you just said, and I thought about the fact that things are such a spectrum, aren't they, that you can have organizations today that might not even have a physical asset. They might be, bring your own device. So, you know, they might might be completely in the cloud to organizations that are very much still in the kind of physical world and what they do. So there's a lot of talk from digital teams about cloud-first and digital transformation, but often IT and infrastructure teams are often still in the world where they have servers and network switches and still have a lot of that physical infrastructure as well. As someone who kind of has sat in the middle, what's your take on that?
2: And this is where I think I I get quite frustrated when we treat cloud as its own silo and as the be all and end all. Cloud very much, for the vast majority of organizations that have any history at all, unless you're cloud native and there's very few large organizations that are cloud native, you've Mm. got that hybrid estate. You've got a load of physical servers sitting in a data center. I mean, for goodness sake, so many organizations still use mainframes. It, it's, yeah. I mean, it's what they say with media technology. You never actually, I think the slate's the only one that's disappeared properly, isn't it? You know, you've still got radio, you've still got TV, you've still got cinema, and now you've got streaming. Uh, Stream, you know, streaming onto whatever device you want, but all of those older technologies still exist, and it's absolutely the same for most businesses. So we need to put in place a management system that actually is capable of managing all of those assets, no matter what how legacy they are. Uh, as a holistic entity to understand the value they're bringing to our organizations, how much they're costing us, whether or not it's worthwhile shifting them to to the cloud or whether we wanna actually leave them in a data center, what the risks are that are associated with with changing the platform that that we're using for particular services, all of those sorts of things. It needs to be managed within that broader context of what's going on in the organization rather than just saying, okay, let's shift to cloud. And I, and and this is where I got, you know, I called out sort of stuff from FinOps. The the last FinOps report, they were saying, um, you know, X percent of of organisations are still on-prem. And I was thinking, well, you know, they're going to stay still, assumes that they're going to get off on-prem. But I think we're going to have on-prem legacy systems forever, just as we've got mainframes forever. You know, it's we need to manage it all together, as opposed to thinking, let's manage cloud.
0: Yeah, quite right. And When CloudSoft, when we consult with our customers, one of the conversations we have, we take stock of a, a, an organization's IT state from the, through the application lens. What, what are the workloads that are delivering value to the business? And if we put our thinking hats on, where is the right place for each one of those workloads? Not for all of them. There's no one size fits all. Everything should run in the cloud or everything should run on the mainframe or everything should run on Kubernetes or everything should run it's it's a workload specific thing, but it's also gonna-
1: Matt, it's also there's a there's a bit of that desire almost like it can be simple again. So I think what we've seen over time is that you know we've built up these structures of dealing with kind of physical equipment and you know, often when it's a physical equipment, it's a very easy thing to put on a balance sheet and be able to, you know, put over over a period of time. And I think that people are going, well, if it's going to change, I kind of want it to change thoroughly to another model that I can have that same simplicity around. And I think the challenge that we have today is that technology has not only grown it is widened and widened so the way that we look at things and the way we separate our technologies are much you know we can go anything from a microservice to a data center right and actually there isn't going to be a simple system that's going to replace what we have before so it's like dealing with all of that complexity and that there's a little bit of fear I think around how do we get to a point that we can manage all of that, particularly when it comes to financial management as well.
0: That's a a great point. Um, You know, Kyla, you mentioned FinOps, and Vicky, that's a nice segue, talking about financial management. And We have started to see the rise of these kind of open source, community-led best practices that the wider community is sharing uh, across many industries. They're talking about how to overcome some of those Challenges around business alignment and and financial financial cost management. Um so to put it bluntly, Kylie, since we've had many interesting conversations around this, why should a company care about what the community thinks about best practices like FinOps?
2: Because actually I think I think FinOps has got a lot going for it, not just in terms of cloud management, but also the lessons that we take from how they are, the things that they are doing and the things that they're prioritizing when they are driving cloud optimization and pulling those back into our more legacy uh, legacy approaches. You know, there's a lot to be learned from and I think we really should take note of the way that FinOps, for instance, relates, uh, relates cloud services and, and cloud benefits back, and cloud costs, sorry, back to business metrics, for instance. That's something that, Uh, traditionally IT organisations have really struggled to do. And I think ironically, actually, it goes back to this question of simplicity versus complexity. When you had physical machines, you could point at a physical machine and say, right, that machine is doing this. Therefore, that business unit consumes this service that's the cost of this service because it's a physical machine when we moved into a data center suddenly we had some really really chunky machines that might be running hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of virtual virtual servers that were so so it became really challenging to understand how to split up the cost of those big servers and the and the quite you know the massive costs associated with licensing all of the software that allowed us to operate those data centers effectively now the cloud has taken away all of that that operating you know the VMware licensing costs the 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 Microsoft server costs um, potentially even some of the the middleware costs that we used to have to try and divvy up between any number of business services so so actually we've moved back to much more of a one-to-one relationship between um, the between the VMs and the the services that we're providing in the cloud and the service that is that is being supported. So you can drive that one-to-one relationship much more. So in some ways, actually, from that perspective, understanding the cost of individual services is easier in a cloudy world than it is for much of our legacy estate. But at the same time, just the sheer complexity of the data that you receive from your cloud services and the speed with which you are racking up charges means that you really have to to be on top of it and really be very focused on optimizing and managing those charges. Um, Otherwise, you're, you're going to
1: have cloud shock. Yeah, and I think it's the, I mean, it's a challenge of, you know, we, we know this challenge of when you've invested, nobody remembers what they invested in three years ago, and that's not on the budget. So, you know, it's a, a new bill of increased charge is a much more challenging environment than a, how do I handle my depreciation of something that I've already bought, already invested in. And yes. that, that that risk profile is so so different. So, you know, I know often, you know, I've worked with customers where they're looking at, you know, data center investment or they're looking at, and the problem is when they're coming up to do something new, they don't, you know, many of the people who are involved in the new project don't even know what the cost basis of the original data center investment is. Lots of the costs are hidden in people or in, power for the whole organization or they're hidden in lots of other budgets and they're very difficult to get that kind of granular one-to-one relationship. And thats it's not that it hasn't always been needed, in my opinion, because you've always needed that kind of the relationship to business outcomes mean you take a collection of things that are driving a business outcome and you relate those to them. Now, that collection has always been somewhat complicated. It's been service, it's been network, it's been security, it's been people. But we found ways to almost relate that to some simple box items like virtual machines, like you know, licenses, I guess, would be a very discreet ones. So I wonder if the complexity's actually always been there. It's just cloud is forcing that because it's a more immediate spend.
2: No, absolutely, and as an IT asset manager, one of the, it's so interesting because the the type of risks that I manage have flipped between licensing and cloud. So, so in licensing, the risks were high impact, low probability risks. You might be audited by a mega vendor once every couple of years mm-hmm. and the cost was astronomical and everybody has a heart attack and there's a mad panic and they say never again and they put in place software asset management. But actually, A, you got yourself non-compliant in the first place because you know of poor governance practices, but you didn't realise you were non-compliant because... The, the thing that treat that, that actually crystallized that risk into becoming an issue is so rare. You know, it's it's it might happen once every couple of years. And a software asset manager's like, but I, I get I, I feel like I get audited all the time, but actually it's still really rare when you think about the speed of technology and the speed of business. But the impact's massive cloud flips the risks around. Mm-hmm. So it's a low impact, it's pennies. Every time you're running a server, every minute is pennies, is pennies, but it's high probability because that's because the pennies are being charged every single minute. And so and you've got hundreds of servers and if you get those hundreds of servers wrong, then you're being overcharged by pennies every minute over hundreds of servers, that's very, very high probability that something's going wrong, isn't it, when you consider the size of your estate. But the impact of each error is really minor until, again, a few years later you look back and you think, well, actually, we, we've wasted a load of money. But act- but, but, the but the probability and impact profile of the different risks is just completely flipped on its head in, in, in the world of cloud. And it's the same for SaaS as well, exactly the same. You know, if you don't have a join joiners, movers, levers process that manages your SaaS accounts properly you've been being charged you know 50 pounds a year that doesn't matter it's it's low impact isn't it but if the probability of you being of you know hundreds of users being you're being charged for hundreds of users that have left they're they're no longer with your organization then actually the total impact sort of because the probability is so high the total sum of what you're paying out is still really massive
0: yeah, it's multiplicative, yeah.
1: Exactly. It's sort and, of almost like a dripping tap. And it's even that auditability, as you say, you know, it's it's quite interesting. Like I obviously went through the kind of SaaS being introduced and often you found SaaS was happening in parts of the organization that wouldn't have bought it they wouldn't have bought servers they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had challenges of the you know how to get network ports open or they wouldn't have talked about that at all suddenly they would have had to go to teams and get that facility and suddenly sas went oh i can log on with a credit card or you know even freeware right that i can actually use without any of that governance that had been created around that and the auditability of that is quite it's quite challenging because how do you audit something you don't even know you know many it groups and companies don't even know some software is being used yeah
2: but do you know what i don't see this as a problem and and again i get really frustrated when people moan about shadow it or gray it and how terrible it is i, I think actually no it's not it's the business doing it's your business and your organisation doing what it needs to do to add value and to drive benefits and earn money and serve citizens. And it, how is that a bad thing? Yeah. It's not. It's good. But what we need to do is we need to recognise that actually it's a positive thing and put in place the processes and the approaches that allow us to manage that correctly and minimise the risks over the long term. I, you know, I, I recommend people think about grey IT and shadow IT as experiments. Yeah. So lots of people doing lots of different experiments or so I'm, I'm going to give that application a go and see if it if it works for me and a lot of those experiments will fail they'll use the application for a few months think actually you know what I don't need it any longer so I'm going to cancel it and then it just fades away but one or two of those applications will go viral because they're so useful, they are so become so vital to the business that they just grow and grow and grow. Well, as an asset manager, I say, let's not worry about the ones that are going to fade away after three months or that do fade away after a few months. Let's not worry about the ones where the cost is only £100 or a couple of £100 a year, but we've only got five people using it, and it's not likely to grow. Let's let's keep an eye on things and watch what is what grows. And then once it reaches a particular threshold, start putting a bit more control around it. And then if it grows again, start putting a bit more control around it again. You know, at, at when, when it's, I don't know, you could set an arbitrary threshold. When something hits 5,000 pounds, we start, we, we start managing it. When the cost hits £50,000, right, we want to sign an enterprise agreement and, and start treating this as a, as a corporate asset um, that, that we're going to manage centrally and, and it, we're going to have, you know, specific clauses in the contract that work for us, all of those sorts of things. But we don't need to worry about that for something that's just a couple of hundred pounds mm. and it's probably going to be used for six months.
0: That's interesting, yeah. And I I think the long-term trend is becoming clear. Outsourcing is only going to increase. And in fact, cloud is a form of outsourcing, whether you're you're outsourcing your data center provider or who's buying the, the, the physical hosts on which the VMs are running, or whether you're outsourcing the management of a platform. So infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, whether you're outsourcing the entire software stack and consuming software as a service. But yeah, I think I think that direction of travel is is pretty pretty uh, unanimous. You can't really argue against, you know, the, the tide is moving in one direction. But what's interesting to me is, you know, how how are the management processes catching up? They seem to be m- slower to change because the the financial accounting practices that mm-hmm. have, you know, we've used to measure companies and entire industries for decades and centuries even they are also being turned on their head to to reuse your phrase Kylie and it kind of boggles my mind that a company who's doing the right thing potentially even saving millions of dollars millions of pounds by outsourcing to the cloud Mm -hmm. that shifts from cap that shifts expenditure from capex to opex and in certain industries that's just a no-no so insurance companies for instance are, are measured on their expense ratio where operating expenses, the Opex is expressed as a fraction of their revenue and 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 that is how the the company is judged. So actually potentially saving lots of money but shifting from capex to Opex is is frowned upon and it seems to me it kind of boggles my mind that do, doing the right thing, quote unquote <laughs> um, can then negatively affect the way a company is perceived relative to its peers. Do, you know, are, are there going to be changes to generally accepted accounting practices? Do we need different metrics by which we judge the financial health of organisations?
2: So I think it's really interesting because, of course, actually the, the, the gap accounting practices are fairly universal. And there I think there have been some tweaks or there are some tweaks proposed to uh, support the way Uh, Some cloud purchases are um, amortised. My partner is an accountant and I asked him the distinction between amortisation and depreciation the other week. And he said depreciation is for things and amortisation is for intangibles. So we amortise cloud costs. So I think there have been some fairly minor changes relating to the rules around how you you can amortise cloud costs But actually, a lot of the things where we perceive the value of a company are not actually written into Gap. They're they're actually financial analysts and people making decisions about whether or not to buy a company or whether or not to buy shares in a company are – so, so they they make those decisions based upon rules of thumbs for particular industries. So, a classic one that you hear about a lot is EBITDA for private equity. You know, private equity companies measure the value of 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 a target on based upon their EBITDA. For particular industries, a company will will need to have a particular EBITDA. But I, so, I think what's happening is that that the way the markets and the way private equity value companies and the benchmarks that they put in place for different financial metrics will will change and they will have to change over time. But it is, I I do remember having a conversation with the CIO once who was relatively new. Uh, He was building that business case to say, look, it's, it's best for our organisation if we shift to cloud. And one of the hardest things he had to do was explain to his senior management, because they were private equity-owned, that this would increase co- their OPEX costs and it would Im- so it would impact their EBITDA. So that the senior management would then have to somehow, I guess, communicate that back to their private equity owners and, and sort of balance the, the fact that pri- the private equity industry was still operating on old thresholds, and and this business was was because it was moving to cloud was actually going to shift, and they and should be valued on it on different thresholds. So, so I
1: mean, I again, nobody ever remembers the exact uh, <laughs> our definition, but I guess the the A at the end is uh, it's before amortisation. So if we can offset, if we can put our cloud costs in that amortisation bucket then EBITDA doesn't, I guess that's your earnings before you're counting that cost as well. So yeah. it's really, it's really And again, I think this is the thing that people will, we will find the financial mechanisms on how to use these, uh, how, you know, we will find the ways of handling these. And I think back to something you said, Alistair, around that community-led um, it's about finding those. Okay, this is a way that we can we can all translate it. it. It it almost gets kind of sense checked or test market tested by lots of people being able to take these mechanisms and going, well, I've tested them in my environment, and you know this is how we've accounted for it, and that's worked, and you know and and has worked in terms of inherent value in my company and how we've actually put it on the balance book. And I think those community-led practices are how how we get to standards, I guess, or, you know, many of the standards that we have right across the IT world, security are all based often in those either government-led standards or they're a mix of those community-led standards as well. Okay. Um, yeah,
2: and I think that's another thing where... Oh, sorry, Vicky.
1: No, I was just going to ask one question. So there's a lot of talk and a bit of buzz around composable enterprises and composability. And for me, I sort of love that idea because it makes sense to me in terms of maybe I'm like your granny says, look after the pennies and the pounds look after themselves. So I'm like, I get the principle of breaking down things into a very small Um, common denominators, so you can build them back up into different ways. So, you know, in the old world, we did this when we were calculating costs, like we did this on CPU and RAM, we would allocate costs to them and we could then use those costs across multiple servers and and all that. And so I understand creating those building blocks is something that we've done. The question I kind of wanted to ask, though, is, building blocks are hard because like the granular detail that you might have to go into might be quite challenging to actually do the work to find that out so how do we balance kind of composability and getting down to kind of really small discrete microservices or small services however you want to phrase them but then also take that approach of deal what the is the most important things that we have to deal with on the on the balance sheet. I wonder how you thought we could create that balance between, I guess, looking after the pounds and looking after the pennies. So. Yeah,
2: I think there's a few key things there that we need to take from the old static world of IT. And, and a big thing for me is understanding how... If you compartmentalize things and break them down into small areas, that's great as long as you understand how they're being used. So, if we think about the way we did configuration management, service management, configuration management in in the old world, it was a massive monolith and nobody ever actually succeeded in doing it properly. But when you start breaking things down like that, you do need to make sure that you've got that map of how things are pulled back together. So we need to somehow bring service configuration management, not just software configuration management, but service configuration management back into somehow pull it into the modern world and drive it away from being so being really static and, and a sense of you know, um, here's the golden source of data, but but just Pull it together in a way that allows us to to see all of those relationships, because otherwise all we've got is a load of atomised services that may or may not work together properly, that we may or may not be able to understand the financial implications of those services. But we need to do it in such a way that we don't impact or reduce the organisation's ability to build new services, to reconfigure services. I am a big fan of thinking about what's good enough. Techie, we're techies, we're perfectionists, we want perfect data, we want 100% accuracy in our data, but actually for a lot of decisions and a lot of ways of working, we actually don't need that. So so one of the things I often say to IT asset managers when I talk to them, they, they moan about, you know, oh, I don't have good enough data But what are you trying to do with that data? Is the data good enough? And actually, I think if we take a step back, a lot of the time we'll look at what what our data says and actually it will be good enough to make the decision we need to make. We don't need 100% clarity. We just need 80%, you know, the 80-20 rule. Okay, I can make a decision based on 80% probability. Why not?
0: And I I think actually we we need rough data, good enough data quicker. Yeah. And exactly. I think the, the trade off is we can have good enough data now, yeah. or we can wait for accurate data, but then it's too late. Yeah. And I, Again, FinOps has a lot to say about shortening that feedback cycle between incurring a cost and being able to see it. And I think it's those tight feedback cycles, even if the data is, as you say, approximate.
2: And the irony is, the irony is that if you have those tight feedback circles with data, you're getting data out to people who are using them. The people are saying, oh, look, it it was 80% accurate, which is great, but when I looked at it, I found that it was this issue with the data. Can you fix it up? Okay, let's work out. What let's work through that issue and understand how to how to fix that issue up. And then suddenly the next iteration of data is 85% accurate. I mean, what's not to love? Whereas if you waited before getting the data out to that data consumer until you had perfect data, you, you'd never get that feedback. The consumer doesn't have the data they need to make the decision and everything's just ground to a halt. So, yes, absolutely. Early, regular feedback from a broad from, from you know, a broad stakeholder base is the best possible thing that you can do to actually drive data, data improvement and data quality.
1: It really is. That's really interesting because I was thinking about how many cost, costing exercises I've been involved in and how a lot of them start out, the costing exercises start out with a desire, we will get to the nth degree of data, we will get totally, totally accurate data and we'll really try and get that. And as they get closer to the time that that data is needed, there's always assumptions, data that's missing. You always get to the kind of 80% good enough, we can work with this real. But it's interesting what you're saying is, by starting out with that idea that there's some kind of perfection here, you kind of start start out doing it in a sort of flawed way and you always just end up at 80%. Whereas what you're saying is if you almost aim for what's good enough, mm. you can improve on that. And, and I kind of wonder how many costing exercises have actually always ended up at the kind of 80% good enough, but they've never ever gone anywhere else because... The next time people have done it, has gone. Oh well, when we did this last time, we didn't get it right, so we'll reinvent the wheel. We'll do it a different way, but we end up with the same result as well. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of feel like I've been involved in many of those exercises <laughs> that have done exactly that, which is a bit worrying. Yeah,
2: and the and the. And we need to think about what purpose we're applying the data to yeah. as well. I, I've recently been doing some work with a really, really large multinational, extremely federated. And the, the data gathering exercise, they've done a big data gathering exercise around obtaining all their contract and procurement data. We're sort of straying a bit off cloud here, sorry. But this is but this is the thing, right? It, we need to yeah. not be siloed on cloud. No. So they've done this massive exercise to pull together as much to suck as much data out of all of, you know, their 500 ERP systems that they have globally and put them in a system. And they've got 70% coverage globally and they've got um, about, and they've taken all of that 70% data down to three tiers of categorization out of six that they would like to get to. But the priority for this business is visibility. You know, at the moment, the CEO feels like he does not have sufficient visibility of this organisation to manage it properly. So, he's sent the directive to the data people, I'd like to improve over that 70% coverage. So, what the CEO wants is broad coverage rather than deep quality data. So, I look at the data that I can get around software sales because I was it was a software piece of work I was doing for them and I can easily pinpoint the 10 top vendors. I can see that, that five or six of those are SaaS vendors and the other ones are on-prem. I cannot see the invoice level detail. So, I don't know how many licenses we own. I don't know how many subscriptions we own. But do you know what? Actually, I totally am on board with the fact that it's more important to get a broad coverage of high-level data to manage this organization than worrying about the level of data that I need to manage licenses. You know. At an organisational level, there are far bigger fish to fry than managing licences. But equally, from that data, it's good enough to tell me where to go to start pulling in the level of detail to help me identify savings optimization opportunities within software. It's perfectly adequate to do that. It tells me I need to go and have conversations with this vendor and go and have conversations with that vendor and that this particular operating company has got a, a big chunk of spend with this vendor so let's go and have a discussion there
1: it's good enough <laughs> yeah. I remember I was in a I was in a really interesting meeting where um, there was a conversation and the conversation seemed really reasonable there was you know one of the guys was talking about the the lack of granular detail and in a particular example doesn't really matter what that was um, but he was talking about, oh, we need to know that granular detail. And the finance manager went, why? Why do you need to know it? And he actually, the person couldn't give an answer about why they needed to know it, because they didn't actually need to know it. They just had this fear of, if we didn't know that granular detail, that might that might cause a risk. But they couldn't necessarily articulate what that risk was or why it mattered and there was this idea around oh but we might need it in the future sometime when someone asks us a particularly difficult question and I think in a lot of what we do we can sometimes be as you say there's that paralysis analysis Mm. thing that we 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 spend so much time thinking of oh, what are, the, what are the questions that we can't answer and focus on those rather than the questions that we can answer, which often are those, you know, good enough answers that actually end up being what we make those decisions on as well.
0: I t- I t- go, sorry, go ahead, Kelly.
2: No, I was just going to say, but you know what? The irony of this conversation is actually in cloud, the devil is in the detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we do need a group of people really analysing that that level of detail in order to really drive that optimisation because of the nature of those risks, high probability, low impact. So, we do need that detail to really manage the, the high probability stuff. But I think even in even if you look at a, a FinOps team, they need to be working, and, and this comes back to community and, and these cultural changes that we see being driven by Agile and DevOps and very much by the cloud community that is starting to permeate the rest of the, the more static part of the organisation is the sense of let's go and talk to people, mm. understand what they're trying to do, understand their motivations, understand why they've made the decisions that they've made. Let's give them the information that they need to make better decisions But let's understand that, actually, we've got our own narrow set of priorities, but there's a bigger set of priorities out there, which I think is exemplified by what I was saying about the the organisation I was working with, where the CEO had a particular priority to go broad, and my priority was to go deep. But, But actually... I'm not going to argue with a CEO who's struggling to manage a multinational company because he can only see 70% of his spend. So, you you know, and I think that's one of the best possible things that is emerging from from the cloud revolution is this change in the way that we are managing and building services to become much more collaborative. We're Mm -hmm. building much more generative organisations that are much kinder and friendlier and even if we work in tightly regulated and highly controlled organizations we can still bring some of those lessons in and i think this goes back to um, sort of we 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 wanted to touch a little bit on bimodal organizations as well you know it can be really as an it asset manager i, I sort of look at some of these organizations where um, you've got the digital teams that are the customer facing teams operating very much in the you know in a, in a silo where they they're, they're very agile, they're they're working in small, um, you know, small teams, the rest of the organization is still stuck with lumbering processes and lumbering infrastructure. And I just, I look at that and I just think, okay, well, it's one way of getting the job done, but why don't we start learning the lessons of what's going on and the benefits that we see in those digit, coming out of those digital teams and see how we can start applying them back into the rest of the organization massive cultural change may not be completely possible but let's understand let's going back to this concept of hybrid organizations let's understand how we get the organization working together as a whole
1: rather than really putting in place those extra silos yes
0: there's, totally totally there's agree
1: something about what you said about just understanding the priorities of different different groups in the organization as you say a FinOps group may not have the same priorities as a as a CEO, but they also need to be able to communicate like understand what the level of communication they may have to do with different groups, which you know is no different from us in, in many aspects of our business life that we have to go, you know, what is the audience that I'm talking to? How do I how do I make this palatable and and contextualize it for that particular audience as well? So there, you know, there's some common sense element of this as well. Yeah, and FinOps teams are are, are like asset managers. They're
2: absolutely in that business of translating Mm. things between, uh, you know, developing developer groups and um, tribes and, you know, all the the, Mm. the, um, product groups Understanding how they're working, taking their data, and then converting it and translating it into something that your financial teams can use, that, um, that senior management can use to, to drive management decisions. So there, so there is. They are performing that sort of central layer of translation role. Then what they're doing is is not just about financial management and optimisation. It's also about connecting the two, the the nuts and bolts and the coalface of the business with the with the, you know, with the the central body behind that Absolutely. that is steering the whole operation.
0: Absolutely, it's <laughs> it's it's joining the the tactics at the bottom, the bottom up thinking mm-hmm. from the communities, DevOps or Agile or FinOps. Joining the tactics to the strategy, yeah, um, yeah. which is much more forward-looking. A lot, yeah, a lot more. Well,
1: and sometimes we don't help in the technology world because we love a term, right? And I know, Kylie, we talked previously about the idea that cloud is a, It's not a cloud isn't something that has that really specific definition. In fact, lots of people have uh, spent lots of time and effort and made lots of money in trying to define cloud. And things like hybrid and and technology, we often mean, we often use terms to mean, well, it's this kind of to 80% of describing this, but, uh, you know, it always has kind of nuance and and translation as well so you know often when we're talking to other people even being able to define well, well what does that actually mean there's a huge part of what we need to do because there's we often don't know that we use jargon you know because we're still immersed in it every day it becomes not jargon to you and and being able to explain that as well I think is really incha- you know really challenging as well.
0: Yeah, don't underestimate the value of these, these translators in an organisation yeah. which has multiple multiple silos, um, yeah. translating the business and the technical or translating the financial and the engineering. I think very, very important role. Yeah, interesting. And I think um, we, we touched before around um, having a holistic view and understanding all the moving parts, which are only becoming more numerous. Um, so we, at CloudSoft, we spend quite a lot of time thinking about observability and you know Gartner has now introduced this term for digital platform conductors which is an area in which we we play a part and I think it recognizes the fact that the digital platform is now more heterogeneous more spread out more um, multifaceted than it than it used to be Um, and some of our clients are, are looking for that although I hate the term that single pane of glass to understand older technologies across the holy state of a very complex organisation. Well, What are your thoughts around the challenge of observability and is it the same as visibility?
2: So it's an interesting distinction, visibility versus observability. And I guess observability is, can we see how things are changing, whereas visibility potentially is much more at a single point in time. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from my when I think about I I tend to relate this question back to the work I've done with highly decentralized organizations and again this this challenge of of making the organization visible and all organizations have different layers of control and I think what we need to be thinking about is who needs what information at what level and then understanding how we deliver that information to them so that they can function. So, a highly centralised organisation may actually feel that they want to be pulling everything into a massive configuration management system and that, you know, it's their accurate data and it pulls pushes out data into It provides a data service to loads of different people and I think that's actually it's not a bad approach at all as long as we bear in mind everything that we said about good enough but equally other organisations may actually say is that is that worth it is the challenges around that worth it as long as we are surfacing the information that is needed for the for people to make the decisions that they need to make and I think balancing that out between allowing people to to be to to sort of balancing that that drive between I want to see everything is give people a sense of control versus actually, we're going to let the control very much sit with different parties and different groups uh, and let them do whatever they need to do and only interfere if there's a problem or if if they're heading off in the wrong direction or whatever. Then that that's something that organisations need to come to themselves, and I think there's a real tendency, particularly amongst management types, to want to get their arms around everything and control everything. And I'm, and and it's not just an IT thing. Procurement will be the same, finance will be the same. Law, lawyers are a bit better at letting go, I think, but uh, in my experience,
0: <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> the, the tension, the tension between wanting to retain control and and governance while not inhibiting you know the engine of innovation that is Mm -hmm. actually going to drive the drive the company forwards yeah interesting and again it's one of those tensions where the the only answer to the question is well it depends which uh is always true but seldom satisfying to to, (laughs) to say to people Kylie, it's been wonderful to chat as it always is with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Just, um, just to wrap up, how, how can people find you online? How can people subscribe to to your your stream of consciousness in the online world and hear hear more of the fascinating things you have to say?
2: So, I um, the best place really is LinkedIn. I'm I'm a very regular. Poster on LinkedIn. I'm really very IT asset management focused, so um, be prepared for a load of IT asset management stuff if you if you're willing to follow me. Um, but in terms of just, I often talk at podcasts and things like. It's great because people actually want to hear my thoughts, whereas a, a lot of the time, what I'm putting on LinkedIn and what I'm getting back from IT asset managers is is sort of much more focused around asset management rather than some of these really interesting uh, concepts about where we're heading into the future. So, uh, yeah, just thank you so much for having me and contact me on LinkedIn.
0: (laughs) Absolute pleasure. Thank thank you, Kylie. Thank you also, Vicky. And thank you to our listeners too. Thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe to find out when the next episode of Cloudy with a Chance of Brain will be available for you to download. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Alistair. Thank you.